We're looking at Romans 6 through 8 for a few weeks here. Really the heart of Romans, these three chapters. We talked last week about believing in our newness. And you see by sermon title, we move now to the, the other shoe, which is practicing our newness. Uh, believing in our newness last week, we talked about what it means to be united with Jesus in his death, but not yet his resurrection and, and how uh, it takes a lifetime uh, for, the, for the old self is, is crucified with Christ. And that's positional truth, but how this practically works out, it takes years for us to, uh, for us to die. Um, positional truth, believing in our newness. Positional truth is the support underneath the practical truth, which is about how truth goes to work in and through us, which we really start to get into now, but it will really be the theme of all the sermons to come here through the rest of uh, Romans 6 through 8, practicing our newness. It's really important to emphasize the practice part of it because evangelicals, by and large, tend to get overly cerebral in our approach to discipleship. We tend to think of discipleship as sort of this information download, and it's, it's primarily about believing. And so a lot of evangelical treatments of Romans 6 will go primarily cerebral, that you contend with your ongoing draw to sin by thinking yourself dead to sin, and as you think, so you are. That's how we have often package this. And there is certainly a, a matter of thinking involved in this, but we have to underscore that following Jesus is not just a matter of knowing and believing. It is also a matter of hungering and thirsting. It is desiring the way and the truth and the life of Jesus. It's about our desires, not just our beliefs, but our desires, which, and we'll get into this in, in other sermons. Uh, there's a almost kind of a self-help movement now. It's, it's, it's kind of Buddhist in, in nature, but it, it says desires, our desires are a bad thing. It's bad that we have desires. Just negate and neutralize your desires. But that, that is not where the gospel takes us. Desires are something that are given to us by God. And what our desires need is to be cruciformed, as we're calling it, our, our loves and our longings shaped by the cross by the generosity of grace that is lavished on us through Jesus' accomplishment there. And as we go to our text now, let me begin with verse 7 from last week. Tyler didn't read verse 7 because the text this morning begins at verse 8, but looking back at verse 7 and even at verse 6 above it, as your Bible's open to Romans 6, verse 7, for one who died has been set free from sin. Again, I call this positional truth. It, it doesn't, it's positional in the sense that it doesn't take us to the practice yet. It doesn't take us to the how-to. How to live free from sin's dominion. How to live dead to sin. How, in the words of verse 6, how the body of sin is brought to nothing. The how-to is the practice of our newness. It's tactical. It's strategic. Taylor even reminded me this week, we were talking about how uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament and the prophets also talk about pondering the path of life. That is the role of thinking. We think out, wisdom is thinking out our actions in order to act according to wisdom and alignment with grace. Grace doesn't send us into further captivity to sin. Grace sends us to freedom from sin. That's what, that's what Paul is teaching here. 
And yet, and yet, and yet, one of the pillars of wisdom is realizing with increasing clarity and honesty just how drawn to sin we are. And this is why Paul tells us in our passage today, pick it up down in verse 11. He's going to give us these negations. Verse 11, consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself as to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now we're starting to get a little bit practical. Although we still don't know how to exactly, what you've got there in verses 11, 12, and 13 is we're told we're going to have to practice our newness, but we aren't told how, we're just told don't. <laughs> don't do these things that are part and parcel of, of, uh, of a life that is pre-Christ or a life that shows no cruciformity to Christ. Now, where the how-to happens in Romans is chapters 12 through 16. We get toward the end of Romans, and Paul begins to specifically spell out how-to. But for now, where we are now in Romans 6, Paul is giving us a way of looking at ourselves in Christ that we are redeemed sinners, And last Sunday we talked about when you put the word redeemed with sinner, you're into a tension. We are redeemed and sinful at the same time, but because we're redeemed, we don't give ourselves to sin. Grace leads us out, not further in. This passage before us is working in the tension. And for time's sake, I just want to lift a a couple of things uh, out of this. They're both in verse 11. In verse 11, you get the phrase, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so let's just put these in two simple questions. What does it mean to be dead to sin? And what does it mean to be alive to God? Again, verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So just taking that as the funnel through which we'll look at these verses in this passage, two questions for this morning. What does it mean to be dead to sin? And then what does it mean to be alive to God? We want to get to the practical, and we have to, but for now where we are in Romans, it's still a little bit more positional. We're talking a little bit more about meaning than doing, but we're moving to doing. But we do get signals here that there is a practice of life in Christ, not just a set of beliefs to affirm. We make a response to what God has done for us in Christ. We seek the alignment of our loves and our longings to His way, His truth, His life. We have a work to do because it is work to, for instance, verse 13, not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That's a work. There's work involved in that. There's effort. As Dallas Willard used to say, uh, grace is only opposed to earning, not to effort. There's a work to not giving ourselves to where sin will take us. So the fact that verses 11, 12, and 13 put to us as negation, sometimes people say, well, you know, this is where the scriptures are all about no and don't. And so verses 11 to 13 here, do not. This doesn't mean there are no positive practices to commend. But let's just look at these two considerations, these two questions that I've raised. The first one, what does it mean to be dead to sin? And we'll talk all through the rest of this little series in Romans about this, but we're just getting bearings with it today. What does it mean to be dead to sin? It means we give ourselves neither to the recklessness of sin 
nor to the despair, personal despair, over sin. What does it mean to be dead to sin? It means we give ourselves neither to the recklessness of sin nor the despair of sin. Let's talk about both of those on this continuum. Because we're redeemed by Christ, this is our newness. To be redeemed is to be in Christ and to know His grace as a resource for living free of sin's encumbrance. We don't have to go there. Grace is not a cover for us to to hide out in sin because we're covered by God with grace. Our old self, remember that in chapter 6, verse 6 last week? Our old self is who we've inherited from Adam. That takes us back to Romans 5. But our old self is crucified with him. Verse 6. But our old self, which again is not some part of us, don't think of this as, as part of me and this part of me. It is us. Our old self is who we are as Adam's descendants. Our old self dies hard, meaning we still feel the draw to sin even when it costs us something in consequence. Even when there are dire consequences and we knew better and we still did. Even when we hate our sin. Paul will speak to this all through chapter 7. The experience of being drawn to what I hate doing. Uh, it's, it's like Gandalf told Frodo about Gollum. He loves and hates the ring as he loves and hates himself. And every sinner, redeemed sinner, knows that dynamic of loving and hating our sin at the same time. But again, it's not some part of us that's drawn to sin. We're drawn to sin still, even as redeemed people, whether it's a good time for us or a bad time. And Paul speaks to this in our passage. The very nature of having the negations in verses 11 through 13 is because of the possibility sin still holds for us. It's why he began chapter 6 as he did. Look, look back at the beginning of chapter 6 just for a second. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he has the strong negation in verse 2. No means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He begins the chapter that way. We'll pick back up here next week. Look at verse 15. It's a repeat. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Why are these two rhetorical questions repeated? For emphasis, obviously. Everything repeated in Scripture is for emphasis. But what's the emphasis? It's human nature to exploit something good. And, in fact, you see this all the more, the more dead to sin you are. When you're alive to sin, when you're enslaved by it, it just feels like your natural element. But when you're dead to it, when you know that you've been redeemed, you see human nature for what it is all the more starkly. There's a British uh, journalist, uh, there's also an an author named uh, Francis Spufford, and I, I, I love how he writes about human nature. Spufford says, it's not just that we stumble and lurch along and mess things up by accident, which he refers to as our passive role as agents of entropy. But also, Spufford says, we need grace because we are actively inclined to break stuff. His words, stuff here, including moods, promises, relationships we care about, our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high-gloss shine positively seems to invite a big, fat scratch. This is the truth about ourselves. This is the truth about human nature. It's why every fountain in the world with a sign beside it, please do not throw coins into our fountain, can make change. 
the truth about ourselves Paul knew and he speaks to in these verses before us. It is human nature to exploit something good. Grace is good. God's grace is very good. God's grace is gloriously good. It's pure goodness. Our redemption is His grace applied to us, and this is good. And God knows that grace put out there for public consumption, God knows that grace gets dinged, it gets scratched, it gets torn, it gets weathered in public circulation. He knows this better than anyone. He holding the patent on human beings. God knows better than anyone our inclination to exploit the good that he's done for us. To think to ourselves, well... If God loves giving grace for sin, if the preacher says there's more grace in Jesus than there's sin in me, then I can do whatever I want because I'm covered. And you know what? That's true. You are covered in Christ. You're covered even more than you know you're covered. But this doesn't mean it has never meant that you and I can just do whatever we want. That kind of of processing is where sin takes us. It's, it's not where God's grace takes us. Now, most of us know this, what I've just been saying. Most of us are trekking with this. We've known this for a long time. In fact, if we've grown up in church, most of us in this room know that grace is not licensed to give ourselves to sin, and so we aren't reckless in sin as a rule. Most of us in this room We may have our moments where we give in to a reckless temptation, but what we are so, more so in this room, we're those who get defeated in our struggle with sin, and we we start to convince ourselves this sin, whatever it is, this sin has always been with me, and it will always be with me, and I can't do anything about it. In other words, our issue is not so much recklessness in sin as it is despairing over our sin. And the longer you've been in church, the, 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 the more developed your Christian upbringing, uh, the, the more pedigree you have through education and training and, and exposure in the camps you went to and, and the experiences and the volunteerism and, and holding positions in church, the, the more you feel this despairing over our sin. See, what it means to be dead to sin is that we neither go reckless in giving ourselves to sin, but we also don't go to the other pendulum swing, which is despairing over ourselves and sin. And the despair comes when we try to break some old pattern. We know what our issues are. And then we don't even know what some of our issues are. There's some things that we know are obvious, they're blatant in our lives, and there are other things that, that are sin that we, we, we don't know to call it sin. But we, we hate giving in. We give in to our anger, our lust, our envy, our greed, our indifference, our pride, our gluttony. Whatever the indulgence, whatever the corruption, we give ourselves to it and feel incredible guilt when we do. And we promise ourselves, we promise God, never again. Here's what I'm going to do, God, to ensure this never happens again, but then again happens. And in despair of ourselves, we convince ourselves we must not actually be Christians after all. How could a Christian have that thought? How could a Christian say that thing? How could a Christian go there and watch that? How could a Christian engage in that action? 
How could a Christian withhold himself from that action? This was the experience of no less a prominent Christian than John Bunyan. John Bunyan is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. He lived in the 1600s. The significance of The Pilgrim's Progress is that second to the Bible, it's the most best-selling Christian-authored book in history. He lived and struggled with blasphemy. Now, blasphemy may not be your or my draw in sin, but it was John Bunyan's, and he wrote about it. And this is what he said. It's a very extended quote here. Sin and corruption would as naturally bubble out of my heart as water would bubble out of a fountain. I thought that everyone had a better heart than I had. I would have exchanged hearts with anybody. I thought no one but the devil himself could equal me for inward wickedness and pollution of mind. I concluded that this condition that I was in could not stand with a state of grace. Surely I am forsaken of God, I thought. Surely I am given up to the devil and a reprobate mind. A very great storm came down upon me, which handled me 20 times worse than all I'd met with before. It came stealing upon me, now one pipe by one piece and then by another, after which whole floods of blasphemies against God, Christ, and the Scriptures were poured upon my spirit to my great confusion and astonishment. They did so overweigh my heart, both with their number, continuance, and fiery force, that I felt as if there were nothing else but these from morning to night within me, and as though, indeed, there could be no room for nothing else. Only by the distaste they gave to my spirit did I feel there was something in me that refused to embrace them. While I was in this torment, I often found in my mind a sudden urge to curse and swear, speak some grievous thing against God, Christ His Son, or the Scriptures. Now I thought, surely I am possessed of the devil. At other times I thought I would lose my mind. For instead of praising and magnifying the Lord with others, if I but heard Him spoken of, presently some most horrible blasphemous thought or other would bolt out of my heart against Him. So whether I did think that God was... Or again, did think that there was no such thing as God, no love, peace, or gracious disposition could I feel within me. These things did sink me into very deep despair, for I concluded that such things could not possibly be found among those who loved God. Listen to that last line. These things, what are your things? What are mine? Whatever it is, for Bunyan it was blasphemous thoughts. Denial of the Lord Jesus, pouring contempt on the Scriptures. These things did sink me into very deep despair, for I concluded that such things could not possibly be found among those who loved God. It was a recurring sin for John Bunyan. Those who feel defeated by recurring sin and go to despairing over themselves because of it, this has always been my sin and will always be my sin. Do you realize... This also is what continuing in sin looks like. It's not just continuing with the act itself. Again, look at verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 15. Are we to sin? Again, the sense is continue in sin because we're not under law but under grace. Continuing to sin is not just recklessness. It's not just refusal to submit to God, though it is that. It also looks like continuing to give ourselves to the despair we feel over a sin when we've fallen into it, when we've blown it. 
When we succumb to that temptation and we feel all this self-hatred and contempt, this has always been and will always be my sin and I can't really do anything about it. It's just who I am. And Paul says, Jesus did something about it for you, which is huge. But we also have to respond to what he did, which is also huge. Our loves and longings have to be shaped by what he did. This is the preaching of grace. You know, the great truth that we'll come to in chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the first verse of chapter 8. It's a favorite verse for so many of us in the book of Romans. And it's a verse that I I often employ when I'm counseling someone who's despairing over their sin, that, that nothing could be as horrible as what they've done, nobody could be as horrible as they are, and, and surely they're not a Christian. When they just recite everything that, that Bunyan said a few hundred years before them. And I'll take them to Romans 8 1. Great grace, abounding grace, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but I'll put with that. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, which says, make no provision for the flesh. You've got to hold both together. When Paul gets to that in chapter 13, verse 14, make no provision for the flesh, you know what he's doing? He's applying what he's writing here in chapter 6. There's a theologian now with the Lord named Lewis Smeads. He was um, at a school, um, I think it was Golden Gate uh, Seminary, which is in San Francisco. Lewis Smeads had a brilliant insight. He wrote about how the gospel not only tells us how bad our pride is, it also tells us how bad our despair is. The gospel not only tells us how bad our pride is, it also tells us how bad our despair is. In fact, the gospel tells us that to continue to despair of ourselves in sin is a form of continuing in sin. We look at verse 12 here in chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your immortal body to make you obey its passions. And we say, I've tried, I've tried, I've really tried. And you have. You've put a lot of willpower to work only to discover your willpower doesn't always work. God knows. We go seeking for something for ourselves from our sin. Something that I will not seek from my Savior. And this is why sin is powerful. Because it's, it's, a, it's a counterfeit Savior. If I just have that woman or that experience with that person, or if I just have uh, this thing that I covet, or, or, or if I could be in that person's place, then, then everything I want would be there. Sin postures as a Savior. It's not just the bad, evil acts. It is that, but it's also how those bad, evil acts can, can twist up in your heart and suddenly you can want to find a life in that. The gospel not only tells us how bad our pride is, it tells us how bad our despair is. What it means to be dead to sin is that we give ourselves neither the recklessness of sin nor the despairing over sin. And why not? Because we're alive to God. I mean, what it means to be dead in sin is that we're alive to God in Christ Jesus our Savior. But what does it mean to be alive to God? 
Verse 11 says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's our second consideration, alive to God. If being dead to sin means we give ourselves neither the reckless of sin nor the despair of sin, what does being alive to God mean? It means my loves and longings are being shaped by the rule of grace. My loves and longings are being shaped by the rule of grace. Now, we're going to get into this more in other passages, more next week. I'm just going to name it for you this week, and we'll unpack this more next week and beyond. But just for this morning, would you notice verse 14? Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What does that mean? What does he mean that we're not under law? Well, he means we're not bound to it as a system. By law, he means the Mosaic law. The Old Testament, that was a binding system until Christ. Now, the law still names sin for us. It catalogs it. It reveals the character of God, the Mosaic law does. But Jesus fulfilled the law's requirements in full, and so it's not a binding system anymore. Paul says there's been a transference. He's speaking primarily in that context to a, to a, uh, a person who... Uh, it's familiar with the law as, as uh, erecting the character of God before them, naming our sin for us. But looking at verse 14, when Paul says we're not under law but under grace, all the law could really do was name your sin. It could not liberate you from it. The law began on a note of grace. I told you last week, Exodus 19, I brought you up out of Egypt on eagle's wings. That's grace. He began on a note of grace. But the law couldn't do anything about sin's power. Grace does something about that. Because grace comes to us through the cross. And God says to us at the cross, I will take your deserved judgment for you. I will step into the place. I will step in the way of my own wrath and take it on your behalf. The law tells us we're sinful and in need of God's grace. Grace tells us we're redeemed and in need of God's rule. The law tells us we're sinful in need of God's grace. Grace tells us we're redeemed, but still in need of God's rule. We'll come back to this next week, but this is why Paul says we're under grace. What is the terminology conveying? It's conveying allegiance to Jesus is to take shape in us. And this is what we're calling cruciformity. And it takes years, a lifetime. But what we're about to do together in communion here in just a moment We talk about the practice of our newness. Communion is a cruciformed practice of our newness. This is not rote ritual. In fact, there are really two ordinances the church has given. Baptism, which we practiced last week. We had the tub up here. We baptized children last week. One teenager and kids. Seven baptisms, I think, last week. Baptism was mentioned in our passage last week. Remember that? Verses 3 and 4. Baptism doesn't save us, but it identifies us with the death of Christ, that our old self has been crucified with him. Baptism doesn't save us, but it buries us, as it were. And though it takes a lifetime to die, what is baptism? Baptism is our pledge of allegiance to Jesus. It says before the assembled church, I'm following Jesus. I'm going to worship him in spirit and truth. Well, communion is a cruciformed practice that is 
Similar to baptism in that it's about allegiance to Jesus, but different in that communion is repeated. Month after month, we take communion together. We return to this table. And as we return to this table, what are we doing when we return to this table and eat of the elements? We are re-allegiancing. I am making up a word there. I don't know a better way to put it. We are re-allegiancing our pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not that we're getting saved again. It's that as we eat the elements, what does the Scripture say that we do? We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, meaning He's alive. And the last promise to fulfill to us is the promise of His return. And so communion is a cruciform practice of our newness. It's a way for us to indicate that we are alive to God, just like baptism was last week. But baptism is a point in time. It's a moment. My pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And communion takes us back to this. And as often as we eat these elements and drink these elements, we are saying to one another and to anyone We are saying we're alive to God. Our loves and our longings are being shaped by His victory over sin, applied to us by grace. This table preaches to us the grace of God that makes us alive to God through the death of Christ. But in the practice of eating and drinking these elements together, we say, Lord, you've made me alive to you. Now make me alive to you. You have that experience when you take communion? Lord, help, help me to, to, to live in such a way that your way, your truth, your life is alive to me. And it gets into my decision making and it, and it gets into the, the way I spend my time and the way I treat people closest to me and, and people on the periphery as well. And, and that it's not just about being this, this good person, Lord. It's about being alive to you. See, anybody can be nice and good. You can be good without Jesus. But you can't be new without Jesus. And that's what communion reminds us of again and again, that, that our loves and our longings have to be aligned to His way, His truth, His life, which comes to us at the cost of His body and His blood. So we'll think about these things as we take communion. Let's pray, and the choir is going to lead us into a time of communion. We'll sing as well. Lord, thank you for giving us truth. Thank you for this passage and for how it speaks of a transference of allegiance from ourselves to you. But you know, Lord, even as you call us to this, how difficult we find this to be. And so we, we look to you for what we cannot really do for ourselves. We can't save ourselves and we really can't sanctify ourselves. But Lord, we can respond. You've empowered us to respond to you. And your grace is a resource. It covers us. Every sin, the sins we know about and the sins we don't. But it's also a resource for living alive to you. And as we take these elements, moments from now, Lord, we, we re-up and we re-in with you. Not as a, a rededication of our life. I don't mean to convey that, Lord, but... Uh, 
a coming again to a practice given to the church that keeps the death of Jesus before us so that we recognize that we are alive to you through what he accomplished on our behalf. May that be our focus. Not on ourselves and whether we think we're really awful or whether we think we're really great. Lord, we all need to be humbled without being humiliated. And we all need to experience the exaltation that the gospel gives us without um, being flattered. Thank you that you're honest with us, but thank you that you're also good to us. So we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.